Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. We have a lot of great shows happening here recently. I'm so excited by the content that we're able to produce and also your responses to it. It means a lot to us if you're able to take some time to share links to this, to subscribe on YouTube or subscribe on podcast channels. And I really appreciate the feedback that we've got to several of the shows that we've had. And we're trying to do things that are relevant to you. And I think today's podcast will be very interesting. I want you to hang on for just a second, but I want you to know too that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And those faithful churches all over the world, you know, we sense that they need pastors that they can trust. And we're doing that in the great consensual tradition of the church. And we love the opportunities we have to serve the church. That's why we exist as a seminary. And we have a variety of academic programs that people can access from bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs. In addition to other things, like we have a lay, lay initiatives like the Wesley Institute. So we'd love for you to check that out at WBS. Dot edu. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner. You can find him at williamhroberts.com and some links in my uh, podcast here. He helps people plan for their future you know, retirement and those type of things. Particularly, he does a great job with helping people who are in pastoral ministry, who are having to calculate and think about things like housing allowances and all those type of things. So I encourage you to check out his ministry. And he comes at it like from a real stewardship perspective that I think resonates with Christians. And so I encourage you to check him out. And finally, I wanted you to make sure you know about a free resource I offer to people. It's five steps to deeper teaching and preaching. It's a 45-minute mini course that I've developed with a eight-page PDF document that comes available to you really to help people go deeper in their preaching and teaching and come up with creative ways to be able to present what God has provided from this, your study of scripture and try to help you to get deeper into that. So you can get that for free by signing up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Well, we are glad to welcome into the podcast today two guests, actually. We have <laughs> Dr. Rusty Reno and his dog. I didn't get the dog's name, but we have both here. Rusty, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> this is Mabel, and okay. uh, I cannot testify to her theological wisdom, but she's a very cute dog. <laughs> there you go. Not many people have an office pet, but you have Mabel there. It, she brings a lot of joy and happiness to our office here at First Things Magazine, and we're just great to have her. We we're, we're all in love with her. That sounds good. Well, my family has just fallen in love. We now, now you might get not not Rusty, but Rocky. We have Rocky, the Yorkshire Terrier. That's uh, just a puppy. It's in my house. So I I can see oh. you kissing that dog. I'm ready to run home to kiss mine too. So I understand. How old is Rocky? Rocky is 15 weeks old. Just a little guy. Oh wow! She uh, Mabel's now 11 months. So okay. She's approaching adulthood. She's full grown. There you go. Oh, well, it's, it's, of your 15-week-old puppy. That's great. Yeah, it's a, it, it actually is a new venture for my family. We haven't had a dog yet, so we're all we're all loving it. And he thinks I'm the greatest thing in the world, obviously, which makes me feel great. It's so um, easy with the, with a dog. dog have, dogs have an easy time admiring us. <laughs> they don't see our faults. <laughs> there you go. Well, you mentioned you're at First Things and you're the editor at First Things, a, a journal that are a, a regular periodical that I recommend people get. Um, I, maybe maybe some people in my audience don't know about First Things. I'd be surprised if they didn't. But why don't you just tell us a little about what, what uh, about First Things and its history and maybe even how you got there? We have been around for 30 years, 30 plus years. 
And the magazine was founded by Richard John Newhouse, kind of a energetic, active uh, Christian intellectual. And he wanted to found a magazine to give a voice to religious conservatives who wanted to speak to our political and cultural moment, to mix it up as we kind of battle to define the future of our country. So mm -hmm. I would say first things is, um, is a, a very important and powerful voice for uh, religious and social conservatives in contemporary America. So if mm -hmm. you have listeners out there who haven't heard of us, you can go find us on firstthings.com. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Richard John Newhouse, also um, one person is connected to our seminary, but also has been on my podcast a couple of times, uh, is uh, Mark, Mark Tooley. Oh, my goodness. I was going to say Mark Tooley from the Institute of Religion and Democracy, which, of course, Richard John Newhouse had a part in founding that organization, too. Were they, they were connect, were, wherever those two groups connected more directly? No. Uh, okay. He was on the board of directors for... Uh, Institute for Religion and Democracy. Uh, yeah, as you as you pointed out, I think he was helpful in organizing that that um, that group. Diane Nippers, who was yeah. the first executive director, really a remarkable woman and very charismatic. Uh, I really have, I had a great admiration for her. And Mark's, of course, doing a great job. Yeah, um, Diane was a, went to the same college, Asbury University. That, um, all my family has gone all right. to. Very good. And so our institutions connected. And so yeah, we were, all, we were, while she was living, of course, very proud of her, you know, uh, connect, kind of connected to like our side of the evangelical Wesleyanism. Now, first thing's interesting, of course, uh, a lot of your other work, your other writing has been connected more directly than the book we're going to talk about to kind of the, um, the cultural piece. Now that that's there in this book as well, which we're going to talk about the end of interpretation. I have it right here published by Baker academic, but for instance, like the return of strong gods like that, I kind of think of that as something that's in line with the vision of, of first things, not that this book isn't, but like in, in that is like an opportunity for you to try to help society see these fortifying, uh, fortifying structures and institutions that need to be strengthened. And that's what I've so appreciated about the message of first things through the years. So it, it, could you give a little summary like of what the, what the, the strong gods are? Uh, before it's a book that tries to help readers understand the cultural moment that we're in. Uh, you know, transgender ideology, where did that come from? I mean, there's a certain story to be told about um, academia and the way it was developed and gender studies and all that sort of thing. But what I'm trying to look at is the larger cultural atmosphere where such a crazy idea could really take off and capture the imaginations of otherwise seemingly sane, you know, mainstream liberals. And so I try to look at what I call the open society consensus. It's, it's original form, which was quite sensible in the way that it has become more and more extreme, more and more dogmatic and more and more destructive. But you're, you're quite right. You know, running First Things Magazine, we want to comment on contemporary politics and culture. But I would say that part of the mission of First Things is to um, provide the readers with, with solid food with respect to their faith. And we do publish stuff that I would like to think is timeless. Uh, that is to say, it, it speaks about questions of our faith without regard to contemporary controversies. And I see this book at the end of interpretation as it was me circling back to some work I did as a professor. I used to teach theology 
at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, and I have a PhD in theology. And, you know, at the end of the day, theology is the queen of the sciences. Yes. And if you don't get your theology right, you're going to have problems all the way down the line. Yeah. You're going to have problems in terms of your thinking about cultural matters, you're going to have problems you're thinking about political matters. And yeah. getting the theology right, boy, if we don't get our approach to the Bible right, we're really in deep trouble. So right. I'm a Catholic, but I think one of the important points of agreement I have with Protestants is the centrality of the Word of God and how crucially important it is that we get our heads on straight about how to read the Bible so that we can um, hear the word that God wishes us to hear. Yes, amen. Yeah, I, that, that comes through so clearly in this book that you, you're hitting on like how the bigger picture of theological interpretation. And obviously like this is something that you, what, what do you mean by theological interpretation of scripture? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing, you know, uh, um, you know, people with, you know, advanced degrees, they like to talk about isms, you know, <laughs> and they like to talk about concepts and methods and all those sorts of things. And there's been a long, really throughout my adult life, uh, a reaction to what is perceived to be the limitations of the historical critical approach to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the old line is that it just doesn't preach, you know? Uh, historical critical study, you know, you, you look at form criticism or, or other, other methods of historical criticism, and it just doesn't seem to do well in the pulpit. Um, and so this led, I think, to some reactions throughout the 20th century, really, of trying to recover a church, a, a, a kind of church relevant approach to the Bible. And people call it, you know, Canonical criticism was one term that was used, which meant reading the Bible through the Bible, using right. the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's an old Reformation um, uh, principle. Uh, and then people in the 70s kind of lit upon narrative interpretation. That was another one. And that really meant reading the, especially the gospel stories as a whole, rather than breaking them down into pericopes. I think it was a but then in the 80s and 90s, people started talking about theological interpretation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and part of my book expresses dissatisfaction with all kinds of methods mm -hmm. as we approach the Bible. And, you know, I really kind of, if you will, I kind of stumbled on, did I stumble? I don't know. But what happened is, is I stupidly, stupidly is not the right word, I boldly and perhaps foolishly launched a Bible, a series of biblical commentaries. Okay. It's the Brazos Theological uh, Commentary on the Bible. And uh, ecumenical, people from different faith traditions, right? They were theologians and not biblical. Yeah, scholars. like you had Stanley Hauerwas do something in that series? Stanley Hauerwas did the commentary. Matthew Yaroslav Pelikan did the first commentary. Yeah. We published on the Book of Acts. Um, Yes, so we've had a whole range of theologians write about different books of the Bible. And wow, talk about no, I mean, real heterogeneity of approaches and methods. And 
voice. Some people would comment chapter by chapter. Some people go verse by verse. Some people emphasize theme and narrative. Other people emphasize other aspects. So it kind of forces you to say, well, wait a minute, what, like, what is going, what are we really doing here? <laughs> and, and I think what, what it was is the presumption that the Christian tradition, especially the creed, is itself a, a product of biblical interpretation. So that church doctrine, church teaching, and church tradition is a trustworthy guide to how to read the Bible. Um, and you know, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a, I think it's actually true historically. You know, when I did work as a, uh, in my academic research, you read uh, Athanasius's uh, Contra Arianism and his, his treatises against the Arians. It's, you know, when I first was a grad student, you kind of pick around to try to find the statements about the doctrine of the incarnation, right? As if it was a yeah, treatise sure. written in a modern way. But going back and rereading it, I realized it is 90% biblical exegesis. Mm -hmm. As Athanasius wants to refute the Arian claim that Jesus is not um, uh, of one substance with the Father, that he's not, you know, he's not the Son of God uh, in in the sense of being fully divine, he wants to refute it. He goes throughout the scriptures to the hard passages that sets out the contrary to explain how to read it in the right sort of way, and then the passages that support uh, what, what scholars call the high Christology. Um, mm -hmm. And that really helped me realize that the tradition we've inherited is forged through interpretation of the Bible. Right, uh, right, interesting. And so I think that's really what my colleagues and fellow readers, I wrote my own contribution to the series of commentary in the book of Genesis. And so I, I learned a lot about like how to read, not how to read the Bible, that's a little pretentious. Uh, I learned a lot about how not to read the Bible. <laughs> and uh, so, so I came up with this kind of formulation that theological interpretation is very simple. It, it presumes that what the church teaches and what the Bible says are one and the same. Mm. And you know, you read the Bible and you realize that's not always obvious. So mm. it's the intellectual work that we undertake to try to puzzle out, now wait a minute, how can what the Bible says here be made consistent with what the creed says, you know, I do make a great deal out of the uh, Genesis one. You know, right. Genesis one two, it seems like, you know, there's like stuff out there, a chaos that God is reorganizing. But our tradition says God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. Um, so God creates everything in creation. He doesn't rearrange pre-existing stuff. So how do you how do you interpret? Genesis 1, 2 in such a way to, uh, uh, in, to make it coordinate with. Now, in case of, I learned a lot from uh, St. Augustine and also Karl Barth about evil as nothingness and chaos not as a thing, but rather as, as, uh, as the emptiness, the void. So mm -hmm. that, that passage to be interpreted that, that God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. 
and that nothing is a kind of paradoxical power, uh, you know, because we feel it as the power that dissolves things, as the power of evil. Doesn't pre-exist uh, uh, creation, but it's uh, when God says um, it is good, he's making an affirmation of the priority of existence over non-existence, being over nothingness. And I go on like that in different passages and so on. So I guess my general point here is that um, when we read the Bible, I give examples about how for the Protestant tradition, the presumption is that the church's teaching has to be tested by the word of God, by the Bible's teaching, to be tested by the God. And Catholics tend to see the other way around, that our right. interpretation of the Bible has to be tested by the church's teaching. And I think that's a huge difference and very important, but it doesn't mean we actually have a different view. We both assume, Protestant and Catholic, that what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says, what the church teaches needs to be in sync. And even right. anti-creedal churches that reject creeds because they're man-made, they argue that the preaching should be biblical preaching. Yeah. And in fact, they're saying the same thing. What we choose the church is what the Bible says. And the most kind of, the most unreconstructed Catholic is going to say essentially the same thing. Interesting. What the church teaches, we teach in this church, is what the Bible says. And the same thing for magisterial Protestants like, you know, good rock-ribbed Calvinists or Lutherans. They also say, so I look at the different uh, confessional statements, Formula of Concord, Westminster Confession, Council of Trent, Second Vatican Council, uh, First Vatican Council. And if you look at their statements about uh, the Word of God and church teaching, they all affirm that, that these are coordinate. Mm -hmm. Not using the same words always, but that they are, that they are, they mesh, they cohere, they complement, or they reiterate. Uh, and, and like I said, you, you know, I've got a chapter on Epistle of James, faith, faith that works is dead. Yeah. St. Paul, oh, we're saved by faith, not by works. Well, okay, which is it? Yeah, sure. You know, and I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in theology. You could just be a person who's literate in the Bible and know that, that this is a puzzle. So theological interpretation is any interpretation of James and Paul that makes them coordinate. That makes this them is so helpful. So like, it's this idea of trying to bring, and actually like as a, as a Protestant, as I like looking at this, my first re response is, whoa, 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 let's not go too quick to the, uh, the the church kind of affirming and making sure that we like reverse the order, so to speak, as you said, the difference between Protestant and Catholic. But what, what you're suggesting is kind of like, there, there already is a centering dynamic at work and we need to get there as quickly as we can. If, and I, I guess, is, is this- But we need to know what we're arguing about. Right, so if we go, oh wow, I never thought about that. Protestants and Catholics agree that what the church teaches and what the Bible says are one and the same. Yeah. Um, and where, where do we disagree? And a, a lot of it's material. Um, so I look at this passage on James versus um, versus Paul, and look at what Luther's how Luther resolved the tension, how Calvin resolved the tension, how Martin Chemnitz, who's a second generation Lutheran theologian of, of tremendous influence, how he resolved the tension, 
how a guy named Cornelius Lapide, a Jesuit, wrote commentaries in every book of the Bible, very influential. Um, again, a generation after the Reformation, how he resolved the tension. And, uh, and you can see that it really, it was very difficult. I mean, it forced a lot of intellectual creativity to try to puzzle this out. And you and I could look at all four of those men and say, I find their explanations inadequate. That's not my point. My point is that the intellectual work of showing how our proclamation is consistent, both with what our tradition teaches and what the Bible says, that work is what I call theological exegesis. In fact, I would say that work is just plain, simple theology. Yeah, sure. You don't have to qualify. But, but by, by saying it, maybe you're just trying to make sure people are connected to the text? Correct. Look, I'm, I think one of the great tragedies of modern theology is its detachment. I mean, I, you know, the church fathers, like I said, Athanasius, he's 90% exegesis, 10%, you know, concepts. Mm-hmm. You do a PhD in theology these days, you don't do any, you don't get any training in biblical interpretation. Right, right. There's no expectation you'll do it uh, in your professional life. Uh, now, of course, some of the great figures in the tradition have always done that. I mean, even um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, not a theologian whom I follow in terms of my own theology. I think he was a liberal theologian who got us Probably wouldn't be at first things if he did. No, but (laughs) we got going down the wrong path. Um, Nevertheless, he wrote a commentary in the Gospel of John. Hmm. So kudos to him. He actually tried to interpret the text. Every theologian should be humiliated by how difficult it is to actually read the Bible. Interesting. And, and I think that's what is interesting to me, your chapter on origin. And and so uh, even this morning, I had a student who um, uh, questioned, oh, there's a, and, and in my role, some I, I get complaints every now and then. Um, and so, and- Or a complaint against origin? Uh, yeah, guy. yeah. So somebody, uh, a <clears throat> professor was quoting origin and they said, well, I would have liked it if they would have said, uh, you know, remember, we don't agree with everything he says. <laughs> and, uh, but anyhow, like certainly people, because of some of the challenges of, of origin, people don't like to, to bring him up. But you have this really interesting chapter talking about his commitment to the text. And I, I've found this like this spiritualist type of reading. Tell us, like, what what was it that led you to origin, or have you have you always had interest in him, or is this just a recent thing? You know, I wrote a book with a colleague in patristics called uh, "Sanctified Vision: An Introduction mm-hmm. to Early Christian Interpretation of the Bible," and it was a book that's kind of a it was a sort of sneaky, subversive book, uh, posing as historical, but really a kind of how-to book, how to read like the fathers. Interesting. And origin, it just was obvious to me as I went through that kind of research and, and, and writing that book that origin is the father of the Christian biblical tradition. I mean, his interpretations of the Bible became um, not authoritative, but exemplary. And so uh, he, he also, his devotion to scripture was extraordinary. He probably had the almost the entirety of the Bible memorized because you can tell when he's because he gave his what we 
his, what continues to exist of his commentaries in the Bible are often homilies. So they're all given orally and mm. then transcribed by, by um, auditors. And the amount of back and forth, different levels of the text. So it's, it's not like he was, it's not like he was, you know, in his office, paging through with a concordance. He had a mental And he also developed what's called the hexapla, um, you know, which are the, you know, I think it was the six different um, uh, Hebrew versions of the Bible that were available, plus the Septuagint, um, or maybe it was other, I can't remember exactly what constitutes the hexapla, but he was aware that the scribal, because, you know, there are no printing presses, that there were errors in yeah. transmission. And so he wanted to have compared different um, uh, textual traditions to come up with, with what was from really a contemporary uh, um, scholarly standards, you know, what was the most likely authentic um, uh, version of the Bible. Uh, so th this kind of devotion to the text. And what I point out in my, in my um, meditation on origin is that he can interpret on the basis of particular words in the Bible, place names. Mm -hmm. and there, a lot of people argue that this kind of allegorical, that's what's taught, uh, that's what it, allegory, just in the Greek just means other speak. So okay. it says something, it's really about something else. You know, so, uh, uh, you know, it's other speaking. Um, so you're speaking in a code. And so he reads a lot of the Bible as being about what it's about. He doesn't deny it's about what it's about. It's about the Israelites um, fleeing from Egypt. Um, uh, but you know, in the account in Exodus of their flight from Egypt, there are many, many details. And he is very concerned to, um, to, to listen to what the Bible has to say in every respect. And so he leaves no stone unturned. And a lot of people criticize, well, this is arbitrary. But I think once you get into this material, you can see it's not arbitrary. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a verbal connection that he draws within the Old and New Testament, as well as a spiritual um, connection. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, uh, you don't, again, you don't have to agree with it. You could kind of come away saying, yeah, no, yeah, maybe strains it too far. Right, sure. Maybe you think that the underlying spiritual argument is actually false. Uh, but you have to really, it, you have to ask yourself, well, what do I have? You know, okay, uh, I'm not going to go with this, but what do I have, you know, to offer for this passage of when I give is, um, the Israelites, uh, you know, it's these place names as they move uh, out of Egypt and towards the Red Sea and what to do with those place names. And most modern biblical scholars don't want to do anything with them at all. Sure, sure. And uh, so my view is it takes the interpretation to beat an interpretation. Ah. Uh, and again, Origen doesn't pretend that these readings are essential. Mm. He doesn't make them status confessionis. Instead, he's saying, dear reader, you know, in God, God, in his wisdom, you could be a 
scriptural literates, God in his wisdom took the Israelites through these places in Egypt. Why? What does that mean, those places that he took them through? Or you could be more like me. I'm a kind of a more of a modern, um, uh, non, not, not quite so, uh, um, my doctrine of inspiration allows for editorial interventions between, um, uh, between the events and, and the text. But then, but I see, well, God in his providence, uh, ha had it be so that the text speaks of these places, uh, you know, I don't even have to say Moses. It could be the scribal tradition. Why? Yeah, sure. So I think this is something that I've, I think Origen really has to teach any Christian reader of the Bible, which is ambition. Hmm. We should be ambitious as readers. We should want to squeeze the text right. uh, to get everything from it that God has put in it. Yeah, it's interesting to get into that situation where we want to find all that we can. And, and part of it, sometimes if somebody's in a preaching situation, and this is my case where, you, you know, you get beyond those first few years of preaching, and then you realize you're going to have to, it, you run out of all the, the, the five sermons that you had. So uh, you need to develop some other, uh, other ways of making sure that you're getting the most out of the text. And that's what drove me back now, I, you might not like this word, kind of a methodological approach. And so in our tradition, like in, in my institution, we have the inductive Bible study method, which, you know, arises from Dr. Robert Trena. Nevertheless, like the whole pro process of that is to try to see how can we read well? How can we see what these words have to say? How do we, uh, I, I tell students in preaching classes not to preach the first sermon that you think of as you're uh, Reading oh, wow. passage, right? You know, like that sermon's been preached. That the first and second sermon have been preached. Get to the third sermon, get to the fourth, like find something else. And I love that image of being able to say, like, origin having ambition in his exegesis. Like he's willing to go in and work with the text so much, even if it's not like saying, This is thus saith the Lord, but this is something that we can draw from. Like, like you're talking about like the names in the Exodus or these type of things. I think there's something to that. Also, you know, I'm a, maybe it's my theological training, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Thomist. And the Thomistic method is the sick at no, I mean, the scholastic method, you know, it's the yes and no. So finding contradictions in the Bible is actually a very good thing to do because it, you know, iron sharpens iron, as it says sure. in Proverbs. And so you want to, it gets the wheels of the mind turning because mm. you know that the word of God does not contradict itself. And so we read in the New Testament, uh, a perfect love casts out fear. Right. And we read in the Psalms and the, in the Old Testament that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, uh, and the fear of the Lord is everlasting, another biblical passage. So what does it mean to say that, well, okay, now I give that example because in the city of God, St. Augustine actually grapples with the, that apparent contradiction. And he distinguishes between three kinds of fear. Uh, you know, one, one fear, you know, is, is the fear of punishment for our sins. And in Christ, uh, uh, we're forgiven. And so we need not harbor that fear. Um, and then the second fear, is, um, is related. It's the 
it's not just the fear of judgment, but the, the you know the, the fear of transgression, but the fear of of final of final judgment and hell. We don't have to have that fear. And then he says the third fear, though, is really a kind of awe. It's the fear that you feel when you're crossing a footbridge over a huge chasm, hmm. and you know that that bridge is not going to collapse. You trust in God's mercy and love. Right. Nevertheless, the yawning gap between sinful man and the holiness of God is far deeper and more frightening than any, any worldly chasm. And no matter how much you trust in God, you can't help but tremble as you walk across that bridge or as you're carried across that bridge. As I think he's even a better image given um, uh, the provenience and, and of God's grace. Uh, and that's what, we're, that's what St. Augustine gives. Well, I think that's actually helpful people. We talk, we talk way too much these days yeah. about God's love, 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 no, love, no. love. And I think most people say they, they want to affirm that, of course, but preacher needs to do justice to the fact that uh, it is a frightening thing to be brought to be brought near to God. Uh, yes. You know, we I like that you bring up provenience. Uh, that's something in our tradition that's uh, often mentioned in John Wesley. To, uh, mentioned uh we talk about provenient grace a lot in the in his order salutis like that god is always going ahead and that's really the parallel to kind of predestination in this tradition but it also has a, it's not like john wesley invented it like it goes back to, it goes back a long ways but that god is at work moving around us uh in front of us behind us uh, sometimes we call it like a sneaky grace like there's something to this that is deeper than we can imagine and i think that, that that's the point too with why we want to get um move move past these kind of surface level readings and and do they align with the church and this, this is something that has happened across the centuries indeed yeah um okay i'm interested too you bring it and I, it caught me a little bit off guard uh I, the chapter i don't know what the number of the chapters i have um this william langland's this poem well pierce plum uh, yeah so to talk to you about like uh I, I found this really fascinating in the middle of this book to come upon upon you using this poem Look, tell me about that a little bit and what what I, i'm curious i mean i read what you said about it but i would like for you to share it with the audience yeah i mean i guess i wanted to give an example of a, um, a, uh, a scriptural, um, how, it, how a scriptural imagination um, shapes, uh, shapes a world. And the poem, Pierce Blum, has got a deep scriptural logic to it. So it is, I, I mean, I kind of present it as a interpretation of the Pauline image of the church as a body with a head and feet. And how, because you know, in in um, Second Corinthians, uh, Saint Paul is—is is it Second Corinthians that I'm writing up? I think it's you know, is that where the analogy of the body is? I'm kind of a classic Catholic here. I do uh -huh. read the Bible, do read the Bible, but I can never kind of keep keep my 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 scriptural uh, passages. I believe it's First Corinthians. Is like it's uh, right before the love yes. chapter well. Yes, right. So it's before the you, great. You call me, call me to have a Wesley Biblical Seminary. But uh, I was like, I was sweating there as you were asking me that question, making sure yes, I got it. Right. right before the hymn to love. 
And, you know, St. Paul is dealing with all of these conflicts in Corinth. And yeah. he's, he's, you know, uh, and he, he affirms a kind of what I call a sort of hierarchy. The head is the head, the foot is the foot, is the foot but the head and the foot have to be in a, a relation of love. And so love lubricates the hierarchy of community, as I describe it. And, uh, and then I look at Pierce Plum and, and read Pierce Plumman as an extended meditation on, on that Pauline teaching. So hierarchy, that there would be headship, right? Is, is, is uh, I mean, a lot of the modern world thinks that the solution to injustice is to get rid of relations of authority and obedience. And then how do you get, how do you prevent abuse of authority? Oh, you get rid of authority. <laughs> and uh, whereas, and that comes up in Pierce Plowman. But after we get rid of authority, you get, uh, you get chaos and, and people abusing um, whatever advantages they can have in the moment. And so the, the, there is no possibility of, if you will, justice without virtue. So for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about this great poem, which is a, um, a kind of allegorical, itself an allegorical late medieval poem about uh, the quest for uh, Piers Plowman is trying to, um, uh, he seeks, Got two parts. One is, um, you know, really the proper form of society so it can serve or encourage holiness. And the second part of the poem is the individual's pursuit of sanctity. So one is, you know, what kind of society we have to have in order to encourage people to pursue sanctity. And the second part is uh, the individual's pursuit of sanctity. It's a complex poem. Lots of dreams. I thought it was very interesting, and I'm uh, completely. Uh, unfamiliar with it. I never heard of it. I'm sorry to say, maybe something is missing in my own education. But I was fascinated by the structure of it. And th thank you for introducing me, but particularly in light of what your goal is, right? Is it to see the way that people are engaging the text and doing that within the context of the church? I think is fascinating and really, really helpful. Like a helpful reminder. I'm curious, like with that, with that poem, like what what that poem is doing in society and trying to do. I'm curious like what you think what what you what you hope happens through something like first things and and, and why you write this book what you want to see happen in society particularly at this challenging cultural moment that we're in i think it's challenging i guess two <laughs> things one is if you will a general point about pierce bomb and the other one specific to if you will social and political matters let's take a general first one of my okay. professors at grad school george Lindbeck. yeah uh, i wondered if you're influenced by them i was oh, thinking yeah. Yeah, like, um, so keep going, Alec. So in, in one of his books, he makes a kind of famous statement that the text of the Bible absorbs the world, not the world, the text. And I think this is a, this is a uh, hugely important for us as teachers, Christian teachers, that, I mean, another way of putting it is theology is the queen of the sciences. And so it's the language of the Bible that has the most penetrating power to interpret our lives. Now, a lot of Protestants talk about Christian worldview, and that's an attempt to express this desire that we 
use the word of God to understand our lives, not use, you know, contemporary psychology or sociology or um, philosophy to understand the Bible. That's the temptation that we use our worldly lens, eyeglasses to understand the Bible rather than using the Bible's eyeglasses to understand our worldly lives. Yes. Um, yeah. I think Pierce Plowman is just such tr so transparently a biblically shaped uh, attempt to look at social reality that it can be a helpful example to us. Uh, now we are, we're going to look at different things in our society than lay medieval society. We see different things. Maybe we need different biblical tools to interpret, but we should always aspire to have the same scriptural imagination when we think about political and social issues. I cannot say that I'm always successful in my own work. I mean, the power of the world is very great as St. Paul um, warns us. And, uh, and moreover, many of the tools of secular analysis are true in their own domain. It's just that they lack the depth and scope of uh, the, biblical, the biblical vision. And to the specific issue, it really has to do with um, our T.S. Eliot wrote that men seek justice without virtue. And we mm -hmm. want to design a society where injustice is impossible. Um, or we want to eradicate, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a kind of crusade to make, to use all the techniques that will prevent injustice from happening. One of the great things about Pierce Promins, the poem, and it's, it, I think, reflects Paul's own insights in 1 Corinthians is that um, there is no escape from the agony of our finite existence, especially under the shadow of original sin. And that mm -hmm. you cannot design your way um, out of that reality. Instead, it can, we can only ameliorate uh, the inevitable injustices of society through, through um, charity, through love. Hmm. It's, it's interesting that what happens with the DEI stuff that, that you just mentioned, it seems to be a way to uh, absolve our, absolve our conscious, consciousness and like give us, make us feel like we are, are okay um, and kind of to get away from the reality of original sin at times. That's what I was thinking as you were saying that. Well, but it's also, it's a technique. You know, people are trained in diversity. I mean, mm. I'll say that. You know, yeah, sure. Diversity training. No, okay. it happens all the time. Yeah. It's a. It's like, you know, you got to be trained in how to operate this piece of machinery or something like that. So it treats others and society as a kind of machine, if you will, that if we just get the right techniques, then we'll be able to make the world a better place. Instead of uh, recognizing, I think, uh, again, as I think the New Testament makes crystal clear, that is really conversion of hearts that uh, that's our only hope for any kind of um, improvement of our condition. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, the separation of powers in our constitution, one can be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And the serpent wise side of things is taking into account, into account the inevitable self selfishness of sinful man and then designing a system that minimizes or maybe even encourages that selfishness in a kind of productive direction. Um, but 
we also have to be innocent as dogs and recognize that we can't really humanize our social relations, but for, in, unless we, we have a, that's a, that's a task of the heart as opposed mm. to, if you will, you can design things to try to minimize injustice, but how do you actually create the warmth of, uh, of human community? That can't, that's not a function of design. That's a function of a kind of overflow of the human heart and people willing to give themselves to the common projects that we, uh, we, we pursue together. Um, and that's, that is a, if you will, heart work and not, yeah. not uh, head work. I just read, uh, came upon a poem in Tom Gregg's book on uh, ecclesiology. Um, and interesting, I, I can't think of the Irish poet's name, but the, the line, the last line on Thanksgiving, I read it on Thanksgiving, interesting enough, it's like, less quid pro quo than overflow. And so like, it's the idea is like, less like what we do, you know, uh, you do this, I do that. And instead, what we're looking for is the overflow. And they like, I, I think my understanding of what, what the poem was trying to do was that's what Thanksgiving is, is this pouring out of gratitude beyond just like, okay, it's exchange. Like, I'll, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Yes, and I think where it comes to it, I have this beautiful line, and that's exactly the spirit of Piers Plowman. And what comes out, one of the examples of this is this medieval practice of hospitality. Yeah. Uh, where, and also, you know, there was a medieval practice of reversal of roles for a day, uh, where, the, where the Lord is subject to the peasant for a day. And mm. all of these are recognitions that, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that, um, you know, the Lord has uh, in mind for us, you know, a kind of gift of self to the point of uh, death to the self. But, you know, and I think Langland recognizes or the Nevels recognize that in this world, while we may have to organize our society in light of the reality of sin, we need to actually give them, have moments where there is this um, foretaste of of the, the great heavenly banquet. And, you know, Thanksgiving for obviously for most people, even people who are not believers at all, they, they have an intuitive sense, a natural sense that this kind of overflow of Thanksgiving is a, a kind of balm in a harsh, um, competitive, quid, quid pro quo world. Yeah, sure. Well, this book, this book is fascinating. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. I know it kind of brings together several pieces. By the time I got to the end, I saw that you had, you know, you've been working on these ideas for a while. But, but the subtitle, I haven't even mentioned it. I mean, people will connect it, is Reclaiming the Priority of Ecclesial Exegesis. And I, I found it to be really helpful. So I encourage people to go out and take a look. Where could people uh, find your work? I guess first things, uh, probably .com, if there's such a exactly. word. But where... You know, I do a regular column in the magazine, so I uh, I pour way too many words out onto my word processor and I give them to the world. So I, I <laughs> any of your listeners, if you visit, sift carefully. <laughs> but okay. I do think the end of interpretation as a book, it, it, it's not too long-winded. It's 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 very right. um, and it's not written. It's written for non-academics. Um, it's you know, I really try to write for the for the Christian reader who really wants to think through uh, um, the Bible 
and its role in the life of the church. And I guess I would summarize um, the subtitle is really basically saying reading the Bible with, in, and for the church. Yeah, sure. Can't and we didn't talk about it necessarily, but too often it's just like me and the Bible. I've got all the answers. And every now and then, a, a student comes into seminary uh, with that perspective. Like after they've taken a few classes, why do I need any of this stuff? Why do I need? Why do I need? Like, well, it's it can't just be you and Scripture alone. This is like done in the light of the community. We come to a text as who we are, who God has made us. We we take the text on its terms, but we also do that in concert with the great cloud of witnesses that have gone ahead of us. Um, let me, uh, I have to ask a question at the end of every podcast and it's connected to the name of my podcast, more to the story. Um, beyond Mabel, which has made an appearance here or there across this interview, uh, is there more to, what's that? She's sleeping on my lap. Oh, isn't that sweet? So, uh, well, I'm sorry to interrupt her nap if I if I do. So, oh, she's got it. Okay. Is there more to the story of Rusty Reno than uh, is typically told and you get a say in uh, all the words that you come out of your word processor? Is there something you like to do that you don't talk about very often? You know, I'm, uh, I, I lived in Yosemite Valley when I was a teenager as a climbing bum. And even in my elderly years here, I still go out and dangle off of cliffs. and, and uh, Okay. One of the great blessings of all these adventuresome activities, of course, is beauty of nature, which is a great um, blessing, but also a realization that um, no matter how spectacular or how heroic or whatever your activities, that the adventure of faith is a far greater adventure than anything that we could find mm. in, in this world. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rusty, for this book, for your work at First Things, and for coming on the podcast. Right, I appreciate great. your time. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.